Anyway, he uh, he's told him that uh, that uh, that that suffering, unjust suffering, is a real possibility, but it's not necessarily going to happen to everyone. It's not it's not a an absolute in in that sense. Now, obviously, if you're in some cultures, it may be an absolute, but but uh, at, at this time and at this place and in, and to these people, that was the case. Yet it was going on, and yet it did happen. In this context, he's going to put it a little bit different. He's going to put it a little bit different about those people you used to run with and how they treat you. That's that's a part of what he's going to talk about here. And and some play and in those cases it can bring some unjust suffering. Uh, but ultimately the the primary verb and it's why I've uh, uh, structured the outline around it is is arm yourself. That's the primary verb that he is going to use in this in this particular particular uh, particular setting, and and I've kind of put it down that that ar- that that weaponry is that one you have the mind of Christ, secondly uh, you have a you, the the example of your changed life, and thirdly the hope that is within us. Those are the those are the weapons that he is going to discuss in these first six verses as we go through them. It's a it's a it's an interesting context. It's an interesting uh, an. Interesting Interesting uh, 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 set of verses that he gives to us here. Basically, the example is Jesus Christ. That's who he points to. He's our example. And uh, uh, you know, the the fact of the matter is, if he suffered unjustly for us, don't expect any different. Is kind of the idea. So we're going to be looking at that in just a couple of minutes. Are there? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Are there any uh, prayer requests this morning? Uh, Ava, who's usually here, uh, is in. Uh, I know. I know the name of the city. It's up north uh, of here, Fresno. Uh, she's in Fresno. Her sister had emergency surgery yesterday. So, anyway, she sent me a text at three o'clock this morning to tell me that. Uh, but, uh, but anyhow, anyhow, uh, uh, just you might keep her in prayer, and she'll be coming home Tuesday. So, anyway, right, we, oh, go ahead. Um, I'm going through the process of applying to all the districts so I can have a job next year. Um, I think I've explained before, but because of a special program on this year, my job's automatically ending with my team at the end of this year. So I'm having to reapply to the districts I'm currently in and all the other districts. So just please be aware that I will find good employment for next year. Okay. Okay. Don, would you open us? Sure. Father, it's such a uh, comfort to know that you know when we sit and when we stand and um, what is going on in our lives. And um, we go down to the bottom of the sea, you you know everything about us. You know our, our anxieties, you know the needs that we have. And we're so grateful that um, you have allowed these things in our life to push us to a closer relationship with <coughs> you. We can't make it in this life apart from your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for the things that you bring, the sufferings, the trials. They're all there for a reason. Um, But we pray for comfort. We pray for understanding, Lord, that we might uh, become more like you through sufferings and trials. Okay. This morning, I I just, uh, just a note, last week, I'm sorry we missed last week, Kathy had a fall. And uh, fortunately, it wasn't serious. There was no serious damage, but uh, 
um, she banged her head pretty good. So anyway, we sorry we missed, uh, and uh, uh, we'll get back to it here this morning. Um, in that, though, uh, Margaret had sent me a uh, picture of, I guess, something Pastor Steve put on the wall, and it, it just tickled me because it's a, a quote that I do all the time. Probably haven't done it in here, but I used to, I've done it, I don't know how many dozens of times, and it's from Dr. Roscoff, and it's, is it, and basically, I mean, we share that experience. You know, <laughs> Dr. Roscoff was a stable at the Master Seminary and at Talbot Seminary, uh, but, uh, um, but he, uh, he always said, Said, you know, uh, a, a text without a context is a pretext, and and uh, that's that's really important. Uh, you know, the uh, there are others that have said, keep your finger on the text whenever whenever you're doing anything. You know, you don't jerk things out of context. As we begin this one, the first word is therefore, and you know, my little saying is, whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? You know, that's that's the question. Generally. It refers back to the preceding context, the preceding verses, or the preceding verse. Sometimes it goes a little farther back. In this case, it goes just a little farther back. It goes back to verse 18 of chapter 3. That's, that's where this therefore ties. Basically, 19 through 22 is kind of a parenthesis. Uh, it's an insert. Uh, he, is, he is explaining, he says in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You could just skip those. I don't do this. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just saying you can drop down to 401 and it follows right along. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So that just flows. And basically that makes 19 through 22 kind of an insert where he expands upon uh, Christ's suffering and and how it corresponds now uh, to our our clean conscience uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is now glorified in heaven. He, he gives some more explanation of the result of of the facts of Christ's suffering and the and the result thereof. And then he comes into verse four, verse uh, chapter four, verse one, and he says, "Therefore, therefore, since Christ has suffered." Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. That's, that's, that's the tie uh, that we come to when we come to this, uh, this part of the task, ta- uh, this, <clears throat> this part of the text. And then the next thing he says is since, and that's kind of important too, since as a result of his, because he did, because of Christ's suffering in the flesh, that, that's what he's saying here. It's speaking of the cross. That's what it's speaking of here. It's pointing to all that happened with Christ during his incarnation culminated at the cross. Now that's, what he's, that's, what he's, that's what he's bringing us to at this point. That Christ suffered in the flesh. Uh, it, suffering is a repeated theme in the book of, in the book of Peter. In fact, in chapter 2, excuse me, verses 20 and 21... He says this, For what credit is there if, if when you sin you are harshly treated uh, and you endure? But if, uh, but, it, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then, then, you, come, you, then you come to, to uh, 17 and 18. We just read 18. Um, 
17 says, For it's better if God should will so that you suffer doing good rather than for doing wrong. For Christ also suffered for sin once and for all the righteous, for the unrighteous. And basically, what he is talking about here is identifying with Christ in his suffering. Obviously, we don't suffer the same way he did. We don't suffer unjustly because we were without sin. That's not the issue. Uh, We are not sinless, and we're not dying for other people's sin, but it's an identification with Christ that for his name's sake, uh, we may be called. We may be called to suffer is the is the idea that he's wanting us that he's wanting us to understand here. He says, as a result of that, as a result of the fact that that since Christ has suffered in the flesh, and you may be called to do the same, as he's already explained, he says, arm yourself. That's the next thing he says. He says, arm yourself. This is a, this is a call. This is a call to action, is, is the idea here. It's a military term. It speaks about putting on weaponry, putting on armor. That's what it's talking about. That's what this text is talking about. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a preparation to enter battle with an enemy. It's a picture of pre-battle. Um, it's, it's, it's to put on armor is the idea that he's expressing here. Uh, this is just anybody that's ever been in any type of a military unit knows about this. That you're trained to do this everywhere you go, uh, especially in basic training. And, and if you go on to whatever advanced schools you go to, especially if it's, if it's uh, advanced infantry training, uh, you carry a weapon with you all the time. You've you got a steel pot on, you've got a flak vest on, you've got a belt on with all kinds of junk hanging from it. And, and sometimes you're carrying a pack load of stuff as well, too, not to mention about 200 rounds of ammunition. But anyway, those are the kinds of things he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about. Like a soldier prepared for battle. Uh, when I was in Europe, we would uh, have these things they called alerts. Uh, you would, they usually called them right at the end of the day when you're getting ready to go ha- have chow. You know? And they called them, in, and instantly you had to go to the field. Well, when you went to the field, all your armor went with you. You know, you went ready to go to battle. We never had to, fortunately, but uh, but that was the that was the idea. Ready to go to battle. That's what he's called. He's calling them to here. He says, arm yourself, be armed, be ready. Incidentally, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not just a good idea or a suggestion. It's a command. Uh, He says, arm yourself. It's used six times in the New Testament. It's used in John 18, three as weapons. It's called instruments of righteousness and unrighteousness in Romans 6.13. It's armor of light in Romans 13.12. In 2 Corinthians 6.7, it's armor of righteousness. And in 10.4, it's weapons of our warfare. It's also the related term. It's not the exact same Greek word, but it's, it's, it's a derivative. It's a, it's a related term that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, 11, and 13, where he says to put on the whole armor of God. It's, that's the concept here. The concept is we are in a constant battle, and we are to be, we are to be ever prepared. We're to be on alert. And in battle gear is the is the idea that he's expressing in this idea uh, in this in this section. And he, he goes on and he says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with this same purpose, 
Purpose is a is a word. <coughs> excuse me, is a word here that literally means what the same. It's the same word used in Philippians two five that means where he says having this way of thinking in yourself. It's that idea having the mindset of Christ. It's what he's calling you to. Uh, it's it's a, a purposed mindset. That that's what that's what he's that's what he's expressing here. And, and of course, like I said, it's not that we it's not that we suffer for the sins of others as Christ did, uh, but that we identify fully with Christ. That's what he's calling us to here is to be ready to suffer just as our Lord did on his behalf, to identify with him as his people for his causes and to have the same mindset he had about it. You go to Philippians two and it talks it, the, the that's the great Christological text that says says that uh, that Christ even though he was God laid it laid aside his prerogatives as God for you it went to the cross that's ultimately what it says it's the same idea that's the mindset he's calling us to chapter 2 verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. That's, that's what he's calling us to. And then he goes on, he says, And he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. Now this is one of the places where there is a bit of controversy. Uh, it, it really can be worked out relatively easy, but it, there is some controversy here. There are those who take this to mean it's talking about the martyrs who have died, obviously, that is true. If you were martyred for the cause of Christ and you have gone to heaven, you no longer sin. I mean, that's just kind of obvious. Uh, that's not really what I think he's saying here, although that doesn't mean it isn't included. Uh, it, it has It's a perfect tense verb, and it, it speaks of a past action that has an, a, a, a permanent result. And it, it has to do with identifying with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 I think 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though we were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. And in John chapter 1, or in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he was born of God. And this is talking about our position in Christ. Obviously, we all still bear some sin. Uh, That's why John also said in the first chapter to confess your sins. Uh, And God is is just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. Uh, So it's the, the idea, it's not talking about sinless perfection in this life, but it's talking about the status of who we are as believers. And he's basically he's basically saying those who have suffered in the flesh, who have who've identified themselves with Jesus Christ, who who are his people, even though they suffer, they have ceased from living in sin. Sin is not a part, an actual part of their life. The idea is those who obey God in suffering for doing what is right, have made a clean break from sin. That's the way one translator put it. They've made a clean break from sin. That's that's the idea. Obedience to God outweighs avoiding physical pain. It's kind of interesting. This is just uh, in... in 
in church history, this this is a reality. It's not a nice one, uh, but it is a reality that in the early centuries, when the Roman persecution hit its peak, and and people were being drug off and murdered because they were believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, literally, that's what was happening. They were going to the arena. They were whatever, whatever they were doing, wherever and whenever they were doing it. And it spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it was, it was intense in various places and not so intense in other places. Anything, any of the colonies that were tied very close to Rome, it became very vigorous. Uh, the ones that were less tied were not so excited about it. And in Rome, it was really bad. Uh, and the reality was that very often the uh, Roman troops would come into and would would break into where a group of believers were meeting, and it was basically renounce or die. And there were those who renounced and 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 lived. Later on, when the persecution diminished, some of those came back. They repented and they came back. Unfor- I don't know if this is unfortunate or fortunate. I think it's just human nature. You know, if, if, if a traitor walked back in and your parents died because of them, you might not be too nice to them. Well, the early church was not nice to them. They were second-class citizens who sat in the back and could not participate in anything. They could come to church, but that was it. I mean, and that's just the reality of what went on. But what he's saying here, what he's, what he's saying here is, 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 is obedience is more important than physical pain. That's, that's what he's suggesting here. Romans chapter 6, verse 9. He says this, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died. He died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey, to obey its lust. In other words, once again, he is saying the believer is to make a clean break with sin. That's, that's the idea that's being expressed here. That's what, he, that's what he's saying to them. That's what he's saying to them. And then in verse 2, he goes on and he says, so that, and I think this kind of supports the idea that he's not simply taking, taking those who have died have made a break from sin, because he, he goes on to say, so that no longer live the rest of your time. In other words, he's talking to people who are alive. That's what he's saying here. He says, so as to no longer live the rest of your time, verse 2, so long is, is the idea of resulting in, it's a further explanation of the ceasing of sin. And then he says, he, he goes on to say, no longer live the rest of the time in your flesh for the lust of, uh, uh, of men. Um, he says, he's, he's saying to them, he's saying, <clears throat> he's saying once again, he's saying, uh, you're not to live the way you used to live. You're not to live like an unbeliever. Uh, that's no longer a part of you. You're to be living, he goes on to say, living for the will of God. That's, that's the view here. One commentator noted that it's not a, an, it's not a both and, it's an either or. It's one or the other. You can't do both. You either live by the lust of the flesh or you live by the will of God. That's what he's saying. That's what Peter is calling them to here. He says, the time was, he, he says, you no longer live the rest of your time. Whatever that amount of time is, whether it's a few days 
or a few decades. Whatever amount of time you have left on this earth, it's not to be lived according to the lust of men. It's to be lived according to the will of God for the believer. That's what, that is what we say. It's pretty simple what he's saying here. As long as you're alive, you're not to be governed by human lust. You're to be governed by the will of God. The one who is broke from sin will live by the will of God. That's the idea here. He says, live the rest of his time. Live is a word that means the conduct of your life. That's, that's what it means here. That's, that's the definition of it here. How you conduct yourself in life is what he's, what he's speaking of. Conduct, you're to conduct yourself the remainder of your life, whatever that time is. Not in the lust of men. Lust is a word that means passionate longings, which is a neutral word, really. Uh, you know, you can have a... Nobody ever uses it this way, but it isn't invalid. You could say you have a lust for the Word of God, and that would be a positive. Uh, usually it's not used that way in the New Testament. You know, you won't, probably won't find that use. I know you won't find that use. But at any rate, it, it here is, it's a passionate longing, and here it, it obviously means evil desire. That's the whole context here. That's, that's what he's saying. The idea is evil, uh, and, and you're, not to, you're not to live in that manner. You're not to, to live with these passionate longings for things that are wrong. Ultimately, he's going to explain them further further as we go along. But according to the will of God, which we already just read in Romans 6, 8 through 12, uh, that we have died to sin. Christ put, an end to, Christ put an end to sin in his death, and those who follow him have likewise, death no longer reigns in their bodies, so sin should no longer reign in their bodies as well. That's, that's what he's wanting to, them to understand in this first one. They're to have the mindset of Christ. The first weapon they're to pick up, the first piece of their armor, is to have the mind of Christ. To think the way Christ thinks about the suffering this life brings, and to understand that the desire is to do the will of God. Christ in his incarnation only did the will of the Father. That's, that's the idea. That's how we are to live. That's the mindset we are to have. If we have that mindset, we will move forward and suffering will not, will it be a problem, but it won't be a detrimental problem is the idea that he wants us to understand here. And secondly, the second weapon he wants to talk about is that of a changed life. Now, he's going to come into this text, and he's going to say, For the time has passed, it's sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles. Just a note, I think most of you that have been around for a while probably know this. Um, Those of you who might be newer uh, might not know this. Uh, But the word Gentile in the Old Testament always refers to someone who is not Jewish, not part of the line of Abraham. That's a Gentile. Most of us in this room. That's where we would have been classified under the Old Testament. However, in the New Testament, it took on a little different connotation. Because in the New Testament, while in the Gospels and and most of the book of Acts, it is still referring to non-Jews. When it gets to the epistles, it changes. It's not talking about, it's no longer talking about ethnicity. It's talking about spirituality. And when it comes here, it is saying the Gentiles are unregenerate man regardless of their ethnicity. Whether they're Jew or whether they're non-Jew, 
if they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the New Testament in the epistles, and Peter here, sees them as a Gentile. That's, that's the idea. Those who are apart from the family of God. That, that's, that's the idea that's being expressed here. So that's the, way it's, that's the way it's to be understood here. It's not talking about Jew and non-Jew. It's talking about believer and non-believer. That's, that's, that's the idea he's expressing here. Uh, Peter is going to now give an appraisal of the believer's past life apart from Christ. And here he reminds them that that life is past. That's the first thing he's going to tell them. He says, for the time is already past. It's sufficient for you to work out the desires of the Gentiles. He says, what he's saying here is he's saying, look, you spent enough time living like a Gentile. That time is past. You came to Christ and that time ended. And it was sufficient, whatever it was, whether you were saved at 12 or 92, whatever the amount of time you spent living that way was sufficient. It was sufficient to the point you came to Christ. And at that point, it is past. It's, 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 it's a past, it's a done deal. It's not to be part of you anymore. That's, that's what he's wanting them to understand. It was sufficient, adequate. And, and actually in the text, it has the idea of being more than enough. Is, is really the idea here. It's past. It was sufficient. And then he, he precedes this with three present tense verbs. That means it's something that has current effect that happened in the past. Uh, that, that's the idea here. And the first one he says, he says, is that the time has already passed. Here he's talking when time here is chronology. Uh, it's, it's chronological time. It's, you know, days, months, years, hours, minutes, seconds, that, that kind of thing. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And he literally say, literally this would translate having passed away time. In other words, this time is past. This time is gone. That's what he's saying here. The time you spent as a non-believer is past. It's done. That's, that's, that's the first thing. Somewhere in the past, it ended, and it has a present effect. That's, that's the idea. Where you live now, this is past. It's gone. Second, the second verb he uses is worked out. And it, it basically uh, um, has the idea of having carried out. Literally, it means to produce. Is, is the idea here? He says. He says. <clears throat> he says. For the time is already past. Is sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles. Worked out here is to produce those desires. Is the idea for those things to have have had their run within your life? Uh, and he's saying uh, what they produced is is these desires. Is the idea that he's that he's that he's that he's that he's giving here. And then the final verb is having pursued. And this is this is uh, basically uh, the conduct of life again. They build on each other. P- Peter is saying that whatever the amount of time was that you spent as an unju- as an unregenerate person is enough. Don't behave that way anymore is the not said idea behind this. Uh, it's a closed era is what he's telling them. Your unregenerate life is a closed era. Don't get back in that stuff. Don't go back there. Uh, don't, don't, don't carry on there. Once again, the word desire is purpose or longing. Um, <clears throat> 
and it, it says it says the unsafe follow desires of their heart is the idea here. You know, you know, I, I've ever, you've heard people say that. You know, oh, you've got to follow your heart. That's the stupidest advice you can give anybody. <laughs> the heart is deceitful and wicked and evil, and will lead you astray. You do not follow your heart. You follow the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he implants it in your brain. That's, that's the idea here. He's saying, they follow. That's the idea. They followed their heart. And where did it lead? Destruction. That's the idea. Verse uh, Chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers. Your futile conduct. Your dark sinful, unthinking conduct. Futile basically means empty-headed, is the idea here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses, verses uh, one, uh, one, and two, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler, the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind that were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And the idea here is pretty clear is that's the life you're to leave that's the life you're not to have a part of you've had more than sufficient time to live there and 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 when he talks about pursuing a course he's talking about that's the lifestyle the lifestyle was one that produced a misconduct and that time has passed that is no longer to be anything that is a part of you anymore and then he goes on and he he's going to give a list of some of these things that they were involved in and the first thing he says having pursued a course a conduct of life that was wrapped up in sensuality that's the first thing uh, this word sensuality is basically an overarching kind of term uh, it has a broad scope and a broad meaning. It, uh, it means unbridled, unrestrained vice of all types. Um, a, a corollary word to this or a synonym to this would be debauchery. Uh, that's, that's the idea here. It's excessive indulgence on sensual pleasure. That's ultimately what it means. It, it just is, this is all you live for. You know, this is this is your life. This is where you spend all of your time. Romans chapter one. Oops. Romans chapter one. This is a long passage, but it's it's worth a reminder. I, I I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is the world we are currently living in right now. Verse twenty one. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile, empty-headed, in their thoughts, and their, fo- and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in, in its likeness of corruptible men and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be honored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. You could write in there humanism in that, in that 
in that idea. Who is blessed, uh, the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the males abandon the natural function of the female and burn in their desires toward one another, males with males committing indecent acts and receiving their own uh, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You can write LBGQXYZ community right in that context right there. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God then gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, full of, uh, uh, excuse me, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, trustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and though And although they know the righteous requirements of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give heartily approval to those who practice them. That's what what he's talking about here. That's the kind of lifestyle sensuality represents. All the vices that you can think of. That's what it that's what it represents. Secondly, he gets a little more specific and he says lust in this case. And this is the passion that drive people into sinful indulgence. That's that's basically what it means here. Uh, that whatever the specific grouping of sin, of sensuality you're involved in, that that's that's the one that floats your boat, I guess you could say. Uh, that's that's what this one is talking about. That's that's what lust is talking about. Jude, chapter uh, well, there's no chapter. Jude, verse eighteen. And they were saying to you, in the last days there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. That, that's 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 a prophetic utterance there. And here 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 Peter is saying this is way people were and are that we were before we were saved. And then thirdly, he says drunkenness. This is um, this is a word that literally translates wine bubbling up. I, I don't think it's just talking about champagne. It's talking about wine bubbling up is the idea here, and the idea. Behind this word is uh, is that they are alcoholics. This is habitual intoxication. This isn't they have a glass of wine with dinner. This is that's all they do. That is dinner, lunch, and breakfast, and all in between. It's they just they're drunk all the time. Incidentally, this word would apply um, quite effectively to drugs and addiction to drugs. It would, it, would, it would apply just as well there. Uh, that That is, is a part of it. And then fourthly, it says carousing. Uh, this is uh, interesting enough, given the time of year we're coming into. Uh, this is uh, practicing wild parties or orgies, i.e. spring break in Fort Lauderdale and in Mexico and so on and wherever else they go. Uh, that it's that kind of idea. Uh, one uh, one example that is cited by an Old uh, Testament historian is is a crowd of drunkards going down the street, screaming, hollering, and singing. 
Mardi Gras. <laughs> Whoever said that? Thank you. That that's yeah. There you go. That's there. There's a picture of it. And then five is really a description of carousing. Although he made it as a separate as drinking parties. In other words, they just got together to drink. That's the idea. When um, years ago, my best friend, he almost talked me into this. I I didn't I didn't do it, but he did. Um, he joined the Marine Corps. And, of course, uh, that was a one-way ticket to uh, beautiful Southeast Asia. And uh, not a one-way ticket. He got a round trip. He made it, he made it home. Uh, but uh, before, he go, before he went, when he was in the staging battalion at, at, uh, at Fort uh, Pendleton, at Camp Pendleton, Marines have camps, Army has forts. Uh, when he was at Camp Pendleton, um, he would come home, and he had a formula for how he could get the drunkest the fastest. Well, you know, no excuse for this, but on the other hand, where he was going was not very, and he wasn't a believer. But that's the idea here. It's just just getting drunk to get drunk, drinking drinking to get drunk. And when he got a pass, that's what he did. Uh, that That's the idea here. And then it, finally he says this. He says, abominable idolatries. This is lawless acts of idol worship. And this is to no longer be present in in, in believers. And and the interesting thing here is, when he talks about idol worship, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, No, but I say the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to gods, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. In other words, these whole set of of activities do nothing but worship demons. Demons are behind this. And and they need to understand that. And believers can't be a part of this. Uh, that's the idea. We need to be a part of this. This was once your life, but it is no more. That's That's what he's telling them. And then in verse 4, he goes on and he says, And in this, they are surprised. That you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. In other words, your old buddies, your old drinking buddies that you used to go out with, you've you've changed. And they're shocked at the change. They look at you and go, how come you're not going with us down to the do drop in tonight? That's the way they react. He says they're they're surprised, they're shocked. This same word uh, is the surprise is to be astonished or shocked is the idea. It's the same concept that is used in First Thessalonians one nine. Only there, it's used in the positive sense. Is the shock at seeing how fast the Thessalonians turned from idols to the living God. They went the other way. They went the right way. Uh, but this is, these people are shocked to see that you did that. That you did like the Thessalonians. You turned from the wicked way of life to serving the true God. And they're shocked in that. And, and that you no longer run with them. You, you don't participate in the same dissipation. You don't participate in all of these things that, they've li- that, that Peter has listed. You've, your life has changed. It's radically different now. And as a result of that... Um, 
incidentally, this this idea of the same excess of dissipation, excesses, means the overflowing. It's, it's used the water that uh, you left the faucet on and the sink just ran over and flooded the house. It's that kind of idea. Of course, they didn't have sinks with running water, but nevertheless, that's a modern example. That's, that's what it would mean. Just the water overflowing, uh, you know that kind of idea. Uh, it's 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 used the water overflowing excessively, and one one uh, one uh, it, and, it, and it pictures a crowd just racing forward uh, into these activities. One uh, one commentator said, "A euphoric stampede of pleasure seekers." Is, is the picture that is being expressed here. Uh, and, and, and they're surprised that you no longer run with him. Notice 3, 316, uh, where, where Peter wrote, Have a good conscience so that in the things which they are, uh, the things which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. That's what he's saying here. That's, they're surprised. They're shocked. Uh, and, and he says, they malign you, which means to blaspheme or to slander or to defame. Basically, they start calling you names. They call you, you know, oh, you're Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, you know, that, that kind of thing. You're too good for us, all of those kind of things. James 2, 7 says, says this, says, Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? That's... That's a rhetorical question. Yes, they do. In John fifteen eighteen, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's, it's just, that's just a given fact. Verse 5 goes on, and he says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's a reminder. This activity doesn't go unpunished. It won't continue forever. And while you're suffering now, there is an end to these things. And he says, he says to this, Peter tells, tells, tells the persecuted believer that their persecutors will give an account to him who is ready to judge. This word give an account is a bookkeeping term, which is interesting because... The books are opened and they give an account from the books. So it's a bookkeeping term. And basically it says they're going to, the books are going to get balanced is the idea here. And, and it's future tense. It means that sometime in the future, it doesn't specify when, it doesn't specify a date, but it will happen. God is going to judge. And these blaspheming unbelievers who live this life of dissipation will give an account. There'll be an accounting of what they have done. Uh, that, that's, that's what he's saying to them. It's, it's a frightening idea. Uh, it's the same word as used in Matthew twelve thirty six, where Jesus told the Pharisees, men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the idea here. They're going to give an account. They're going to answer for it, is the idea here. And they're going to answer before the judge and they're going to answer for a judge that will not show any leniency but there will be no partiality either Uh, him is Jesus Uh, God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son I've given a whole list of of texts there which speak of that Uh, but while God is the judge he has given 
the task of judging to Jesus. That's that's the idea here. He's the one. He's the one. When we get to the book of Revelation, he is the one who sits on the great white throne. He's the one who opens all the seals of the revelation. He's the one who carries out, who executes judgment, and and that's the idea here. And he says, the living and the dead. He says the idea here is that no one escapes. The idea here is. Death doesn't escape this judgment. It just takes you right into it. And if you're alive when the judgment comes, you go right into it too. That's, that's the idea here. There's no escape of this judgment. Romans 3, uh, 3.19 says, All the world may become accountable to God. That's, that's, that's the idea. They'll all give an account. There's no, there are no exceptions. No one's going to get a parole. No judge is going to release them on a no bail kind of idea. None of that stuff is going to happen. This is the living of the dead. No one escapes. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Yeah, 6 through 9. Since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflicted you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his mighty angels in, fl- in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. That's, that's, that's the description that he gives to the believers at Thessalonica who were facing persecution, incidentally. And then he, he goes on, and, he, and, he, and, and then we could go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We're not going to read that whole context, but that's the great white throne judgment, where the books are opened, and everyone stands before the judge individually. And the book of their life is opened, and they give an account. That, that's the picture that he's saying here. This is what he's saying here. Be armed with this changed life, because they're going to give an account. That's the idea. And then lastly, he calls the believers to be armed with hope, uh, to have their eyes basically fixed on Jesus uh, from Hebrews. Uh, They're to to be uh, armed with hope is the idea here. And verse 6 says, For to this the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Now this text, he basically begins by saying, for the gospel. In other words, for this reason. For this reason the gospel was preached. This is why it was proclaimed. It was announced. Literally, that's the word. It was announced. Uh, it was proclaimed. It was announced. Uh, to, to those are dead. Now, if you're using uh, most English Bibles, not all, but most being English Bibles have added, and it's in italics, the word now. Now dead. Because they want you to understand what the Greek text really meant here. The English doesn't bring it out very good. It doesn't mean the dead were preached to after they died. It means people who were preached to before they died, but have now died. Because that was a reality. Uh, there, there were believers who had died. And, and so he's, that's what he's explaining here. And that's why the now has been added. Uh, <clears throat> they had the, uh, the gospel announced to them while they were alive and accepted it, if they're believers. And they have now passed on. Some of them may have passed on as martyrs. 
That may be the that may be the case as well. And and the readers of of, of Peter's day would have known people who that was the case. They they probably had uh, relatives who had passed, and they probably knew people who had been martyred who have of course passed. And that's the idea here, he says, and I I think that's the idea that comes with the next part where he says, where he says that uh, even those who were now dead, so so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, in other words... The governmental tribunals or whoever it was that uh, in authority judged them and had them executed, which is why they are now dead. That's the idea here. Uh, They were judged by men. In other words, you may stand before a local magistrate and he may uh, accuse you of being a Christian and there's enough evidence to convict you and you're executed. And you're now dead. That's 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 the idea that he's that he's that he's expressing here. Uh, judged by men, he says. He says, though you are judged by men, they're alive in the spirit. That's the next thing he says. They're alive in the spirit, according to the will of God. In other words, man may be able to kill the physical body, but he can't kill the spirit that returns to God. That's, that's, that's what he's saying here. He's saying that's the hope. The hope is even if they kill you, what happens? You go to heaven. You go to God. That's where you go. Uh, that's, that's the triumph that, that, uh, that you are to understand. The Thessalonians were concerned about this. In First Thessalonians, they, they asked Paul about this. They asked about, you know, we got... We've got, Jesus hasn't come again, and there's people in our congregation who have died. What happened to them? You know, did they miss out? Do they not get to go? And Paul answers that question. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, verses, verses 13 through 18, and he basically says, the dead in Christ rise first. I've always said they rise first because they had six feet farther to go. But uh, that's one of my heresies. Okay, so anyway. But nevertheless, you know, uh, uh, it says the dead in Christ, they raise first. And then the rest of us are caught up in the air to be with the Lord. And there we will remain. Uh, the idea here is no enemy can overcome the promises of God and, and our salvation in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter, it's in here somewhere. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. <clears throat> Therefore, do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light afflictions, that's Paul's word, suffering is a momentary light affliction, is working out for us as an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are, not, for, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then in Romans chapter 8, a familiar verse, I'm sure, to most of you. Chapter in chapter eight, thirty-seven through thirty-nine, Paul writes. 
But in these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's the point here. We have... We are to be armed with hope, understanding that whether we are in Him in this life or we pass from it and we are even better off in glory in His presence, we have that hope. That's, that's what He's calling us to. That nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. This is only a momentary light affliction compared to the glory which we will ultimately face. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter is calling the believer who may be facing unjust, uh, unjust suffering, and he's calling all believers, whether they're facing it or not, to be prepared in, in the eventuality. He said, arm yourselves, be armed, take up the mind of Christ, think as Christ thought, put your mind on his things, which are the things above, the, the things of God. And he says, and arm yourself with a changed life. Remember that you are no longer who you once were. You are now a believer in Jesus Christ. And those things have passed away. They are no longer a reality for you. And then finally he says, be armed with hope. Remember. And I would think that sometimes when you're deep in, in, in the throes of a persecution, mm-hmm. it, it's probably hard to maintain hope. But God is calling us to that. That's what he's saying. Remember. This is just momentary. It is only temporal. There's an eternal glory that you will one day face. Any comments or questions this morning? Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we, uh, we look to you this morning. Uh, we look to you because we know that the reality of persecution could come to us at any moment, at any time. And Father, we, we ask that we would be found faithful that we would be so tied to you that it would be, like Paul said, nothing more than a momentary light affliction in compared to the weight of the eternal glory that awaits us. And Father, that we would, we would be armed. We would be prepared, ever ready for whatever comes. That we can, compl- that we can stand in your presence knowing that we have done all to stand. And we would thank you for that, Lord. And we would thank you, Lord, that, that in all of these things, we can be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he is our example, that he is our, our mark, our benchmark that we are to set our life against. And that we know that while we can't reach the sinless perfection of him, we can come close. And that we can work hard in him to glorify your name. And that's what we would ask, Lord, that we would glorify you in all that we do, whatever we face, whatever the circumstance we find ourselves, that we would set our mindset with Jesus to glorify your name. And we ask this in his name. Amen.